Welcome to Say What Needs Saying. We have a great discussion planned for tonight with topics suggested by our listeners, some of which are joining us for the conversation. We'll see how far we get, but on the docket, we have COVID-19, in particular, the Supreme Court ruling on vaccine mandates, but also masks and the pandemic as it stands. We have a question from a listener who asks, if there's a disputed fact, is there a source that we can all agree to trust? And if we have time after that, we'll talk about Kyle Rittenhouse and listeners' thoughts on the verdict. With that, let's jump into the conversation. We're several years into the COVID-19 pandemic at this point, and uh, we still have mandates for masks, vaccines, tests, other measures, depending on where you're at. The Supreme Court recently found that the Biden administration couldn't enforce its proposed vaccine mandate, which would have affected private employers with more than 100 employees. Um, but they also found that mandates could be implemented with healthcare providers that accept Medicare or Medicaid payments. Um, so this brings up a bunch of different questions, first of which is, what are your thoughts on vaccine mandates? But then, as well as that, what are your thoughts and feelings on the Supreme Court striking down this attempt by the Biden administration to implement these mandates on employers? What are your thoughts on different mandates being applied in different contexts? We've also got you know, the decision on healthcare providers that is different in this case from generally applying to private employers. We've got one person with their hand up in the chat. Feel free to jump in. Hi, everybody. My name is Mike. You know, this concept of mandating the vaccine would be a lot more palatable if the vaccine actually did what they are mandating the vaccine to do. But the vaccine doesn't work as a method for preventing disease, nor does it work to transmitting disease. So having a mandate for a vaccine that doesn't prohibit transmission or prohibit infection, I don't get it. I don't understand it whatsoever. And to me, nobody has been able to explain why the reason for the mandate, the real reason for the mandate, because we know that it doesn't prevent transmission and we know it doesn't prevent infection. So why have it's those, you have to have something put in your body that doesn't do those two things. As all of you might know, Israel, everybody over there is uh, double boosted, triple boosted. Everybody, they've got the largest population of any country that has had vaccinations, and yet they have a tremendously high infection rate right now. So if it worked, I might be able to, um, to get on board, but it doesn't work, so I don't get it. I just wanted to add um, to what Mike uh, had said about the uh, premises of the vaccine mandate. And I think there were kind of these, uh, the points that Mike brought up are, uh, I think people need to understand that more is the vaccines were mandated under the broad premise that, okay, you're doing a good service to your neighbors, to your, to your fellow citizens by taking the vaccine. Uh, because the underlying assumption was, okay, you won't transmit it to others. Um, you will, uh, you'll keep everyone safe. And there was this idea floating around last year and also in 2020 about herd immunity. So if, if you achieve a certain amount of herd immunity through vaccination, then we're all good. We're past this uh, pandemic. But actually that didn't turn out to be true. Um, the main premise of you, you're going to stop 
infecting others. Absolutely not true. You're seeing this Omicron wave that's just tearing apart those who are both vaccinated and unvaccinated communities. So uh, that premise, you can throw it out immediately. The other point that Mike brought up was infections. I know people who have gotten boosters and still got infected. The only thing that vaccination helps with is preventing severe disease, but that's on the very individual level. And based on the premises of medical freedoms and medical decision-making that we have, a person can make their own decisions about their own bodies. And you don't need someone, a higher authority or a government telling them to do that. I just wanted to add, where is this coming from? So I want to back this conversation up with some data. There are a couple of papers that have come out recently that show that vaccine effectiveness is basically down the drain. One of these studies is from uh, Kaiser Permanente. It's uh, uh, from uh, California looking at the effectiveness of, uh, the paper is titled Effectiveness of mRNA-1273 Against SARS-CoV-2, Omicron, and Delta variants. So it's basically looking at uh, the effect of the primary series of vaccination and the booster against Delta and Omicron. And what you can clearly see from some of these figures on the paper is that the vaccine effectiveness basically goes down the drain. It's at 0% for those who got the primary series. For those who got the boosters, it's really unclear. The error bars in those charts are very large, so it's not evident at all. Another study that I wanted to highlight, it's called SARS-CoV-2 Omicron VOC Transmission in Danish Households. Of course, that's, uh, this is not done in the US, this is done in Denmark, but one of their very salient charts that they have is called probability of household contact getting sick for Omicron. And basically the three bars that they have are those who are unvaccinated, got two doses of the vaccine and three doses. And what you can see here is the, uh, the unvaccinated have a probability of about 29%, those who got two doses, about 32%, and those who got three doses, about 25%. So they basically don't differ statistically at all. It's, it's always important for us to back up any kind of arguments that we're making with data. But yeah, just wanted to chime in saying that there is really no, no precedent, no evidence, no, no reason to mandate this vaccine at this point. So we had a couple of comments in the chat first said that if it, it being the mandate, uh, if it's decided by a government, it should be done on the local level. And then someone else said, I agree with assigning it to lower channels of federalism. They can choose as a localized culture of people, large cities in a more severe scenario, it would be much more understandable. If not, you're going to create other, another issue. It shouldn't be mandated though, if it hasn't been thoroughly vetted and field tested. Australia is off its rocker to summarize what I think. I think this brings up two important points. The first that those comments were focusing on of regardless of whether or not there should be vaccine mandates, if there are going to be vaccine mandates or other mandates for that matter, who should handle it? It also brings up the idea of credibility of sources like Mr. Mann was talking about just a minute ago. With any position that you take on these mandates, it should be somewhat data-driven. It should be, we, we don't have, this is still a novel pandemic. It's still a novel virus. And so 
we don't know everything there is to know about it and we won't for years, if not decades, but the data that is available should be guiding decisions and should be guiding policy, at least on some level, um, right? It shouldn't be ignored and it should be involved in these discussions. Someone said, I think the counter argument here would be that it transmits from airports and internationally. So what do you think about the border laws for mask mandates if we assign it to only the local governments? Um, The reality is likely some combination, right? Like with any massive problem, especially one as novel as COVID-19, chances are that we're going to need both state, local, and federal government um, involvement on some level, because that's a good point. If you delegate it exclusively to local governments, you likely fail to address the more broader externalities, the stuff that's going to happen between states or between localities. But anyway, this brings us to the question that one of the listeners had that asked, if there's a disputed fact, is there a source that we can agree to trust? Clearly, there is a disagreement on what is true, what is not true. There's a big focus on misinformation recently. What do you all think? If there is a disputed fact, if we can't agree on something, is there a single source that we can agree to trust, or is it not about the sources themselves? Regarding that, there will never be a source that you can trust. I don't think... And there should never be a source like that in existence because people's opinions vary and the truth is somewhere in a gray area. And I don't think anyone, regardless of their political affiliation, has figured out the truth or whoever claims to figure out the truth is uh, probably lying. So the best thing that an individual can do is to do your own due diligence, do your own research, read all sources, question all kinds of uh, authority and question all kinds of claims that are being made and come to your version of um, what do you think the uh, an approximation to the truth might be. That concept of doing your own research in and of itself, I've noticed has garnered some controversy. You'll say that and a lot of people will react with, well, not everyone has the capability to do their own research. Not everyone's smart enough. Not everyone has the resources. Not everyone knows how to you know, look through peer-reviewed research and look through PubMed and find these studies and look at the confidence intervals and understand what the data, what, what the authors are trying to communicate from their data. Well, actually, before I jump in, I'll let the, this other person jump in. Go ahead. Hi, it's Mike again. Um, you know, it, what you just said is is very important, which uh, relates to doing your own research and the difficulty behind it. And not only the difficulty behind it, but the veracity of the of what it is that you read as you're doing this kind of research. And the thing that that's on everybody's mind that a lot of people just don't want to really talk about is the motivations that people have um, across the board. The motives of what it is somebody is telling you there's a motive behind that. And, and, and that's the age that we're in right now, is that motives drive things, whether they're true or false or, or not. Um, just like uh, the early, in the early days of COVID, there was peer-reviewed journals that you, would, you might and might respect, but all of a sudden now they, re, they, they do retractions and they do different things to pull back their statements hydroxychloroquine and some other of the early drugs that were being tested. 
and and what there's there's motives in the background here there's motives everywhere this is such a motive driven topic it's very difficult to find what the real truth is unless you start paying attention to the source and whether or not they potentially have adverse motives it, it, it becomes more and more difficult when there's more and more motives in the background of any source that you're using. Sure. Yeah. And those motives can come in any form, right? They could be financial motives and it could be that people involved have a financial incentive in one direction or the other to find quote unquote, to find a certain result or to find a certain solution. It could be ethical or it could be moral, you know, people think that they're doing the right thing most of the times. Um, and so it could be that they think that the only way to do the right thing is to present false information or, or what have you. And there's also career pressures in science and other areas where that contribute to things like the reproducibility crisis, where we can't replicate studies all the time due to a variety of factors, right? So you bring up a good point. The, the credibility of the information you get sort of regardless of the source it comes from is also important. What are the biases of your sources and how does that all play into what they're trying to tell you? Uh, Mr. Mann, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add to your point earlier, Zach, um, which was about it's really difficult to um, go on PubMed and search things and definitely agreed with, uh, with that. And, and not everyone needs to do that. There was once a time where we didn't have information. Uh, nowadays, we are inundated with information. You have information on the palm of your hands, basically. And is that better? Yes, 100% better. Even though there's a lot of misinformation, even though there's various versions of what you'd call the truth, and it's difficult to sift through that. But I think humanity is way better off than having no information at all. And so how do you deal with the amount of information around you? How do you deal with differing viewpoints? You don't have to go that deep to, to search things. You can, you can a couple of Google searches from a few sources will take you a handful of minutes to get an idea of what's going on. You can use a lot of tools are coming out these days, like ground news is something that I f uh, follow a lot and I subscribe to. It basically is a news platform that uh, samples all the news that's going around and then gives uh, a, a bias rating by how much of this is covered by the right, how much of this is covered by the left, the center. And then they also have this beautiful thing called the blind spot. So they will take what you are, um, what kind of news is being shown and how much of this is like maybe the left is not covering this at all or how much of this is, the right is not covering at all and tries to give that kind of an option uh, where you can get the breadth of news from all kinds of sources uh, in, in sort of one place. And I think the more we have folks, entrepreneurs and folks who want better news and uh, to, to flourish and people come up with platforms like this, it will be overall better for, for society and better for, uh, for us to get an approximation to, to whatever the underlying truth is at, at much faster. So uh, we've got a comment really quick. It says, can you please restate the platform Mr. Mann is discussing that rates information? Yeah, it's ground news. Yeah, it's called ground.news. It's a very good platform. It's free, but there's also a subscription to it, which you can pay for, but uh, you can get a lot of information uh, for uh, news from there for free. 
and then talking about the news, um, not just to plug this podcast, but that's sort of the point of this podcast too, and others like it, is that talking to one another about these sources and about the information and, and each person's perceived set of facts that is in dispute and then trying to have a conversation about it, see each other's side and point of view and debate or discuss and come to a closer approximation of the truth. I mean, the reality is that no one of us has enough attention or time or discipline or motivation to actually read all of the information out there, compile it, and then determine what's true, what isn't true. When we talk to other people that are getting their news from other sources, we can skip at least some of the, that and compare and contrast between what everyone has read. I mean, BuzzFeed, for just for one example, BuzzFeed is far from one of my go-to news sources, but they were among the first to cover CIA staffers being engaged in sex crimes with children and the FBI's involvement in the Whitmer kidnap plot. And so I, I don't typically follow BuzzFeed or BuzzFeed's news reporting, but following them for those stories got me information that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And so, yeah, knowing what grain of salt to take with your news and knowing what biases exist within it, like Mr. Mann was talking about. And yeah, Ground News is a great resource for it. One thing that I'll add is that a lot of times people will appeal to authority. This is a logical fallacy where basically you will listen to someone's argument strictly because they are an expert in that area or that they have some level of authority or credentials that makes it seem like they should know what they're talking about and that what they're saying should be true. You see a lot of this with scientists in the COVID-19 pandemic, public health experts and others that will make claims, not necessarily back them up. And those claims will then be believed just because they are some level of authority figure. Uh, there have been flaws with the CDC in the COVID-19 pandemic. Most recent, well, actually, at this point, I don't even know if it's the most recent example, but one large example was their recommendations on masking for children came in large part from a flawed Arizona study that measured school outbreaks of COVID-19 and the effect of mask mandates. There were flaws in the methodology. And if you look at the effect that that mandate had, even after the flaws in the underlying science were pointed out, they can have far-reaching effects. Um, this is sort of an exaggerated version of the news cycle where someone will run with a story and it will gain all sorts of traction, retweets, likes, shares, everything. And then someone will have to offer either a retraction or a correction to the story. And that doesn't get nearly as much traction. Uh, it will not travel nearly as far, not reach as many people's screens, not reach as many people's eyes. And then the effect of the story will, will continue, even though the record or the story has been corrected to be more truthful or more factual. So, so yeah, this is all important to think about. There are flaws with these. There are the Arizona study for masking with the CDC. There is the examples like human-to-human -human transmission early in the pandemic that the WHO, through trusting data from China, was, advocate, was claiming that there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. 
there's UN involvement in child sex rings and sexual exploitation. And so these established institutions, while they may be the go-to source for a lot of people, there is still a grain of salt to take with the information that comes from those sources, just like with every source, whether it's fringe YouTubers or governmental entities, there's really no single source that is, as multiple people have said so far, completely unbiased. Yeah, hi, Zach. I just wanted to comment on uh, what we're discussing here about trusting the source and something that I've seen and many of my colleagues, I've, uh, I've experienced it myself. And I think it's, it's really an important idea to think about, especially being able to you know, experience it firsthand and, and see how you're, you're affected emotionally by it and then how you have faced those decisions. But what I'm getting at here is I think a lot of people early on, they trusted the government, they trust they're looking for something to reach out to during a time of, of fear that that would save them because so, they were looking for safety. So they ended up moving in towards this and going ahead and getting the vaccine. And then after more information comes out, they feel like they've maybe been betrayed. They realize they don't agree with everything that's happened, that's been told in the media. And there becomes two sides. There's some people who are willing to change their mind and realize they did something that's maybe against their beliefs or against the data. And then there's other people who are now on that side. They've joined this team of the government, of the pharmaceutical companies where they've taken this vaccine and they've decided now, or they're unwilling to change their mind and admit that this is maybe a negatively impacting their life and the country. And I don't know what to, how to move forward with this, but it's something that definitely is deep rooted in society. And I, I guess I'm just thankful that you have this platform, something like this, where people can get together and discuss these topics and hopefully uh, open some individuals' minds out there. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, just to touch briefly on what you're talking about, and then we'll turn it over. I think there was one other person that wanted to jump in too. But you raise a really good point that a lot of people's trust in the government and other institutions has been rocked during a lot of this. Um, and to be clear, I, I think that in a perfect world, it is the CDC's job and the FDA's job and the, you know, these other governmental institutions, it is their job to protect your rights and to protect your health in relation to disease or to food and drugs and devices and these things like that. And so trusting these institutions, it isn't, I know we just got done saying that you shouldn't trust any institution just because of who they are or just because of what the source is. But I, I completely understand with entities whose express purpose is to handle these types of situations, to handle disease, to handle outbreaks, to handle public health emergencies, that there would be some level of trust afforded them kind of by default by a lot of people. It's hard once you've lent someone your trust in any situation, not just these once you've trusted someone, once you've helped someone, once you've done someone a favor, you're more likely to do that again. And I think, and I don't know the literature on this, so take it with a grain of salt, just like everything else we're talking about, but I would expect that that would extend to things like this, to where you trust a source of information, and then it turns out that they are, that they misled you. But I think you're right that it's it's hard for a lot of people to then see the source that they've been trusting as not trustworthy or at least warranting some level of skepticism here and there. 
we had one other person that uh, wanted to jump in. Tess Laurie, uh, who seems to be a, a very scientific and not politi politically um, affiliated creature, even though she's done a lot of work for WHO and other international organizations, has been very outspoken about early treatment and the fact that she's not been able to really engage with anyone about about true studies that she's done and, and anything that she's put forth who, um, or, or what, what has been, I think, extraordinary uh, scientific information has, has somehow been poo-pooed by, by those who just don't simply want to listen to it. And, and so in her, in her discussions with, I believe it was Andrew Hill, another pretty well-known person in, in the world of, I, I, I think he's, he's at Oxford. He has um, been involved in, in some serious studies and, and has kind of like openly admitted that the studies he's been involved in, he's been, been uh, pushed down in, in saying that early treatment is, is not efficacious at all. And, and almost to, to a hysterical point, and there's a lot out there on, on Twitter and the internet about, about the engagement between Tess Laurie and recording Andrew Hill and, and, and his actual admonition that he has taken money over um, like truth. And, 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 it's, and it's been so sad. Um, of course, you could, we could all say it's conspiracy theory, but, but nonetheless, I think Tess has been um, throughout her years, a, a true advocate of, of science and not someone who can be easily dismissed. But nonetheless, those are those kind of things that we all need to look at. How true is, is this advocacy? And what has she done to help to um, um, perpetuate or undermine kind of the narrative that is there is no thing, nothing other than kind of the, the way that, that various governments have said we should proceed. You know, it brings back the, the concept of credibility of these sources and also the credibility of those sources that are being pushed down or otherwise suppressed, whether it's someone explicitly saying that it's a untrustworthy source or it's something that is potentially not peer reviewed yet. And they, we only have access to a preprint, you know, what credibility do we lend to something like that? If it's something that is an, an atypical news source or an atypical information source, how do we assign credibility to that? And I think all of these questions are getting asked more and more as new media sources come up, as podcasts take off, as people like Joe Rogan have audiences that dwarf that of institutions and companies like CNN or other mainstream media sources, where people like Trevor Noah or Steven Crowder will get more of an audience than your average talking head on Fox or MSNBC because they take a different approach, because they report differently or because they have a different type of show. Um, and so these questions are becoming more and more important as we as we continue and as technology advances and as like Mr. Mann was talking about early in the conversation, as all of it becomes that much more accessible, specifically with science, there are issues of free speech, free expression, free thought in academia, in science, just like there are everywhere. But it is 
disappointing, but also worrying as an academic myself, as a scientist myself, to see things like this. It's why the first series that I'm going to be doing coming back into podcasting is going to be Academia Uncensored. And I talked about it a little bit before we started recording, but I'm bringing on people that have been on some level suppressed or censored in academia, whether it's students that have felt uncomfortable sharing their beliefs or their opinions on certain things, whether it's researchers who have been terminated from their positions because they've had, or at least universities attempted to terminate them from their positions because they had views that went against the missions of the programs that they were employed under, other professors and faculty members that have free speech or free thought issues in academia. We got a comment in the chat. It says, the real question is, what is being forwarded by government and pharmaceutical companies centered in real and honest science or another motive? This topic is interesting because it's a double-edged sword, I think. On the one hand, in order to find a solution to something as novel and far-reaching as COVID-19, something that came up that we didn't have much knowledge about, that we don't understand well, and that was causing, especially early on, the level of damage that it was, the people that are the most well-equipped to do something about it probably are big pharma, are these big, large pharmaceutical private businesses that have the money, have the resources, have the connections, and they were able to churn out a vaccine. Now, we've already discussed previously that Maybe there are certain elements of the vaccine's efficacy that were not exactly as they were believed they were going to be, right? It's not quite as good uh, at preventing transmission or infection as we thought it would be, but it did, as Mr. Mann pointed out earlier in the discussion, it did reduce hospitalization and death, particularly for the early, uh, early variants. At the same time, at what point do you cross the line from this is our best bet, this is our best resource to address this into corruption or fraud or collusion between very powerful, very rich entities who, while they have the capacity to solve large scale problems, they also have the capacity to collude. And uh, I saw Mr. Mann's hand up first, and then we'll go to Mike after him. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's uh, it's a it's a challenge and it's a conundrum in a way that we do want pharmaceutical companies and we do want entrepreneurs and businesses get therapeutics out as fast as possible. And the, it's, it's the beauty of us living in a capitalist society, in a society that values entrepreneurship, that we were able to get these uh, vaccines. There is no doubt about that. And it's one of the fastest in history, uh, produced in a matter of a year. I'll give, I'll definitely give that to the the pharma companies. The challenge becomes is when this becomes a matter of just making profit without any benefit and passing by regulators and trying to just sell their product without any benefit. An example of this is basically the boosters. When the boosters were trying to, initially they were being approved only for those who were immunocompromised and a certain section of uh, the population. But there was a key decision that got made where 
it was basically boosters for everyone. And at that point, there were two senior FDA officials who voted uh, no, and they basically stepped down from the FDA vaccine agency. And then they wrote this uh, a bunch of articles, including a, a, a paper and uh, opinion piece in Lancet, which is a top medical journal, talking about that, yeah, maybe it's not a, a great thing to have boosters for everyone. Another person uh, in, in the, uh, is Paul Offit, who is a uh, senior uh, FDA official. Recently, he himself is very pro-vaccine. He created a vaccine himself and recently came up with, the, uh, with an opinion piece, which is basically, yeah, maybe you don't need to booster up everyone. Maybe you need to be very careful uh, with, with that. And he himself told his own son, who's in his 20s, not to get boosted. So a couple of points here. One, yes, there's, we need big pharma, we need life sciences companies, we need entrepreneurship to get therapeutics to us. But at the same time, we don't want them to get corrupt. So we definitely need a system of checks and balances, a system that is distributed across many parties, agencies of government or uh, independent agencies that keep the power in check. And that's really a system we need. And we don't need corruption seeping in. Also, another point is that not all hope is lost. There are definitely officials in the FDA and in other agencies who are able to maintain their credibility and are fighting for a good cause, even though the overall agency might have its uh, goals and um, kind of the people that they're working with in the wrong place but there are still individuals who want the right thing to be done. We had one comment that related to what Mr. Mann just said, and so I'll read that really quick, let him address that if he wants, um, and then we'll move to Mike after. We had one person that said, as I understand, the hesitancy for the booster had to do with the worldwide need for the original two shots. Yeah, so I, d I don't completely understand the comments. It says, as I understand, the hesitancy for booster had to do with the worldwide need for the two original two shots. Um, I think it's talking about the FDA uh, representatives that you were talking about. I think that part, at least part of their motivation for leaving and for not going along with the recommendation of the booster for everyone was that the vaccine hadn't been adequately distributed to the rest of the world. And that by boosting already vaccinated people, we were not I don't know. It wasn't as equitable a solution or distribution of vaccines as would be sending those boosters to, say, third world countries or impoverished countries or something and letting people go unboosted, as opposed to the concern being something more about the, the health implications or something like that. Yeah, that might be part of it. But the biggest driver was the Pfizer CEO, Albert Borla. Early on, even uh, while the, uh, the, the initial doses were going on, made comments such as, oh, yeah, we might need a booster in a year. Um, and that was purely motivated by profit uh, profits. It's pretty clear right now that he just wanted to sell another dose to make more money off of it uh, without doing the modification to the vaccine. And again, the vaccine was created on the original strain of the virus. After, since then, we've had multiple strains, but there wasn't an incentive to do that research and development, to do that new innovation, to come up with a new vaccine to combat, uh, combat this. Instead, what happened was 
it was just uh, he just wanted to sell more of the uh, to of the original one to see how much profits he can squeeze out of that. So what initially was a good, very much needed uh, therapeutic, uh, much needed, uh, 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 I should say, not therapeutic, prophylactic. So basically, a vaccine. Uh, what was once much uh, needed by society came to us very quickly within a year. But then it quickly turned into a matter of, oh, how can we squeeze more profits out of this? Really quick, um, you, you, you changed your wording from uh, uh, therapeutic to prophylactic. Um, actually, you had it right. It's the therapeutic uh, is a treatment when you have disease. Prophylactic is a prevention of disease. Uh, these vaccines do not prevent disease. They, they prevent the manifestations of the disease from moving down uh, the course towards severe disease, uh, but they don't prevent the disease. So it is actually a therapeutic and not a prophylactic, prophylactic being uh, a, something that prevents. But I wanted to get back to, to what, was, what was being said earlier. Um, several points were made about um, early on in the, uh, we didn't have anybody to get answers from. We, we, we didn't have um, any knowledge. We didn't have anybody to get answers from. And of course, um, because of the historical fact, the CDC in the United States has been an institution which has uh, certainly, um, over the course of, of my lifetime, uh, an organization has done great things for the American population uh, relative to disease and, and, uh, and you know, outbreaks and things. And, and that's what's happened historically. Um, and so we look to them and uh, we look to them for answers and, and we followed their guidance because we don't have any other sources, right? And that's the way things start out. Until, until you get um, the sources start to develop themselves, we don't have anybody else. So, so now you get into um, the CDC becomes um, your main guideline for, um, for information and, and what it is that you're going to do because we don't have any other things. The problem is, is uh, there was something that somebody else said, uh, and I can't remember, is once, once this information gets out there and once the information starts to propagate in society, and once that information from that source continues to be funneled into society, it tends to be the dominant um, information source. And it's very difficult once you get somebody indoctrinated to, to a a uh, to, to look at a particular institution for your news to change that. So that's what uh, it, just by its very nature, the American people didn't have anywhere to go to. So then go, they go to the CDC and they go to the FDA and that's where they're stuck in because that's the only where, place that they had to start with. Uh, it, it takes, it, it's very few people. Uh, I'm sure everybody on this page um, is out of this category, but there's very few people that actually will transition and start looking elsewhere for different points of information. I mean, most of America listens to CBC, NBC, AB, ABC, uh, CNN, and uh, read the Wall Street, and read uh, the New York Times, you know, and and, and it's, a, it's the few people that actually go and search elsewhere. We as a society are kind of stuck with uh, the vast majority of, a, of, of our country listening to the same small group of people that we initially started with. And it's great for this group to have this platform to have other people to go to, 
but it's very difficult to change people's platforms and change people's minds once they've been indoctrinated. Yeah, and all very important in, in choosing your sources, but also then recognizing what your own cognitive biases are and you know what which views you may hold that maybe they're flawed and you're just having a hard time accepting the new evidence that's being presented to you. We had one person that um, commented as well. He said, so I would say to understand what is consistent with our U.S. history and what is right, wouldn't we have to look at the original influenza, which, which uh, was reacted to very similarly? How did we transition out of that? I do not know the history that well for what happened to, quote unquote, go back to normal. Um, but I think we should use the 1918 pandemic as a baseline for many of these conversations. And then we had someone else that said, thank you, Mike, great insight. So, and I agree. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for everyone that's been contributing. This has been really great. In response to the comments in the chat, uh, I don't know the history of that very well either. And so I won't speak to what we should or shouldn't be doing based on that. But I think you bring up a good point that, yeah, it's it should at least somewhat serve as the basis for what we should do next. Not only that, but other pandemics and other issues as well. But as someone just said in the chat too, that was a different virus in a different time. And so it's not going to be a playbook, so to speak. And there's going to be a lot that is going to be different between the COVID pandemic and previous influenza pandemics. You know, there were issues that were longstanding that have been an issue for several pandemics and several emergencies that have not been fixed. Um, communication issues have persisted through several pandemics. Um, there, during the Zika virus, there were communication issues between, I believe, the FDA and various involved parties. I can't remember offhand whether that was commercial uh, commercial entities or clinical laboratories or, or what offhand, but essentially government communication with non-government is a repeating flaw in a lot of these pandemics and a lot of these emergencies. And so even if we can't gather what we should do, so to speak, about the virus and about the specific disease that we're encountering, at the very least, we should learn about what works and what doesn't work in regards to government intervention non-government intervention, private sector involvement, and things like that. Because there were elements to the pandemic that were successful, and there were others that weren't so successful. Uh, I want to move to the last topic that we had for today. Um, we can obviously, like I said before, we can jump back to either COVID-19, vaccines, masks, um, also source credibility, and agreeing and disagreeing on facts. Um, we can move back to any of that if anyone has anything else they'd like to talk about, but I wanted to move at least briefly to Kyle Rittenhouse, um, just because there were a couple listeners that wanted us to talk about it even briefly. Um, it's been a little while since the decision has actually happened, and so not necessarily as timely as COVID-19, but still a really pivotal case and something that had pretty broad implications, both for the right to carry a weapon, as well as self-defense in various situations, because not only was it a nationwide, broadly televised and broadly followed case, but it was in a lot of people's eyes, a more clear cut case of self-defense. And as we saw earlier, we talked about this in our 
uh, early series with me and Brandon and listeners. And we had, there were some people that described him as a white supremacist and a domestic terrorist. And there were other people that described him as a hero. And so this was a really polarizing event. Um, It came to a head with the court finding him not guilty on all charges. The reactions were similarly split. You had lots of people celebrating and claiming that the court had made the right decision, or rather that the jury had made the right decision. Um, and then you had people saying that it was corruption or that it was a the wrong call. Um, we had one comment. It said, some people didn't even know the details of the trial or what he did. The number of people who thought the victims were Black is astounding. And yeah, I think this is, in addition to being a good example, rather a, a, an important case in regards to the right to defend yourself and the right to carry a weapon and all of that, it's also a really important example of media misrepresentation of facts or outright bad reporting. There were a number of details on the trial and on the actual incident that were completely misreported and that came out during the trial and and I think changed a lot of people's minds. Um, As Mr. Mann pointed out in the chat, one of the factors was the fact that a lot of people thought that he, that the victims were black um, and they weren't. Um, All three of the individuals that were shot were uh, white. And so that wasn't the case. There was the idea that he had carried the gun across state lines which turned out not to be the case. There was the belief that Kyle Rittenhouse was completely unrelated to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and was sort of serving as a, a as an armed thug or as a militia member or you know any anything else in that vein. When in reality he had family and work ties to Kenosha, and so all of that sort of wound up falling apart once the trial got underway. Um, as someone. Someone just said in the chat, the details came out and still didn't change people's minds. Some people just didn't want to challenge their beliefs. I think that's sort of a recurring theme tonight. I think whether it's COVID-19, whether it's trusting your media sources, or whether it's the specific case of Kyle Rittenhouse, cognitive biases and other factors that lead people to really get rooted in their beliefs and not and completely unwilling to change them, even when presented with alternative arguments or alternative evidence that goes against what they believe. So yeah, I think that this case is really important. And going forward, I think that this will be something that is discussed when talking about not only Second Amendment rights, but also media and media misinformation and and things like that. Oh, yeah, we have one person with their hand up in the chat. Go ahead. By the way, that's great insight into that there's a common theme in today's discussions that uh, once people get uh, cemented into their positions, them deviating away from uh, the position that they've held, uh, regardless of the inf- new information that's delivered to them, which is completely contrary to uh, you know what it is they believe, they just will not change regardless. And uh, I, I think that's the truth. And and to some degree, uh, I, I have this concept that I call emotional derangement syndrome. And emotional derangement syndrome is a, a syndrome where facts and truth and reality cannot displace emotional positioning. And no matter what is true 
if whatever a person believes, if they, they and they are emotionally uh, engorged in something, it doesn't matter what the truth and reality is. Their emotions cannot be broken by what's true and what's real. And and I think that there's a lot of uh, of that situation happening. And the thread that you said is. People get entrenched and they can't get away from it, no matter what reality is given to them, no matter what truths are given to them. People have an emotional derangement syndrome where no matter what the truths that are delivered to them, if it's contrary to their emotional position on it, they will not change. One thing that my mom used to say a lot is that people are not good at being both logical and emotional at the same time. If you're too emotionally invested in a particular topic or a particular solution or finding, it's going to be that much harder to think logically about it because you're already engaging the emotional processes and using up that bandwidth. On top of that, as humans, our ability to rationalize is both a blessing and a curse. We are able to rationalize pretty much anything into being the right course of action. And People, like I said earlier, I do think that most people have good intentions. That's not to say that there aren't bad actors, that there aren't people with bad intentions. And that's not to say that none of those people with bad intentions are in positions of power. I'm sure that's the case as well. But I, I think that the human ability to rationalize your decision, your the information that you've gotten and your conclusion that you're drawing from it, it can very easily be either an illogical or emotionally driven argument, but is very easy to rationalize with the human brain. Uh, we also had one comment that said the information divide is heightened by social media in general. And we've seen this from sort of the inception of social media. It's ironic because social media emerged as sort of the, the alternative to mainstream media sources. And it was the coming together. It was almost a digital commons or digital public square on which people could receive their information from a variety of sources and then communicate and talk with each other and hopefully prosper and, and gain something from all of that. And then with the introduction of like buttons and share features and retweet features, it started to break down a little bit. And with algorithms that select your content either based on what you will like or what will rile you up and anger you more. That sort of increased the divide. But that said, there is a lot of benefit that has come from social media and the information age in general. Mr. Mann was talking about a lot of that earlier. We had someone in the chat and said, as someone who likes to properly identify a problem before solving it, I hear that social media is the problem. Can we break that down? What is the problem? Will it stabilize its communication, right? So which elements are bad for discussion? And then someone responded, said it's the incentive motives of social media, likes, retweets. But uh, yeah, we had uh, Mr. Mann, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's the way that it's structured. Twitter, for example, taking that as an example, as the most extreme version of it, where you basically can't have a good conversation without people attacking you. Um, the way it's structured is you you say something that's a few uh, hundred characters and it's all meant to be reinforced through likes and retweets 
uh, and there's no negative reinforcement. There's no like downvotes or dislikes, such as a, a, a lot of other platforms might have. Let's say Reddit, for example. Reddit is a platform where people have like generally very nice and respectable discussions because they have both a, a, a positive reinforcement and a negative reinforcement as well. So people can downvote things that are just maybe for that sub-community is bad and they can just remove that. So, that, and, and then another feature of Twitter is that there's a lot of bots, there's a lot of, um, it's open to everyone. So anyone can chime in, which makes it very chaotic. Whereas if you take Reddit as an example, uh, where there's these mini communities of, of discussion and, 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 and it's, it's towards a shared purpose, it's not open for everyone. Although technically it, it is, but these discussions are limited to these mini communities, which makes it a little better. So it's it's a it's basically a, how it's designed. I would say it's a design flaw. Uh, that's that's where the this polarization comes in. And I, I I see a question in the chat, which is, can you fix it? Like make it make it a structure. Try to study the the psychology behind how how people uh, interact and how people get tribalized over social media. And once you understand that psychology, you can try to design it better. Because right now, the way that uh, Twitter and Facebook and a lot of these platforms are designed is to get maximum clicks, maximum ads. These companies being for profit, of course, the profit should be their goal and maximum ad revenue should be their goal. But there is these unintended consequences that happen and then on top of that, they go to censor and they go to uh, remove viewpoints that a certain portion of their company or political spectrum might not agree with, which then furthers that divide, you know? There's one, one thing that out of all of the things that I've listened to in the two years as being a student of trying to make sense out of the craziness and, and having enough of a science background to understanding immunology, there, there is sterilizing and non-sterilizing vaccines. Susan, on a completely different topic. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I, I just want, I want to enter this and just Susan. simply say Susan. that, that cutting, cutting through all of this is to say people don't understand the concept that, you know, measles and polio and, and all, all the different sterilizing vaccines that have saved the world have, have been so different from COVID where it's non-sterilizing. And, and to think that the vaccines that we're, we're now experiencing are, 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 are simply gonna save the world, it's not true. All the other ones have been fabulous and wonderful and we all love them, but there's one thing that is the problem now is that there's this this vaccine, so to speak, that is is somehow going to rid the world of COVID, and it it hasn't, and it won't. And and if I could ever think of one thing going to bed tonight is that people would understand this is a, not really a vaccine. It's not going to save the world. And what we we want to do, I was hoping that that what what we could all do is stop talking about the difference between those beautiful vaccines that have everyone knows have saved the world versus this not being anything other than maybe a, a kind of um, 
pay for a TV thingy poo that doesn't work. It doesn't, we don't lose weight. We don't, uh, we don't uh, get rid of COVID and for what it's worth. Um, that, that, that's the extreme kind of comment I want to make. And if I make an ass of myself, I'm sorry, but. No, you're fine. I appreciate you jumping in and you, you raise a good point that we didn't really touch on when we were discussing the COVID vaccine. And that's that just like we can't have the former pandemics and former emergencies completely guide our, our path through the COVID pandemic, we can't entirely rely on what we know about previous vaccines, because just like those previous pandemics, something is still different about those pandemics and the current one. There are factors to previous vaccines that are different from the current vaccines. And I think that what gets lost in a lot of these discussions about the vaccine, at least in the world of social media and, you know, exaggerated division on the internet, is that people will say, well, what about the polio vaccine? Or, well, what about this or that when talking about, say, vaccine mandates for schools and school children? Because we have this vaccine mandate in this other situation, so doesn't that set a precedent for what is or is not right for the government to do, or what is or is not okay to mandate, et cetera, et cetera? And I think that in a lot of these cases, while precedent is important, And while it is important to draw what we can from what we already know and what which vaccines we've already developed, you raise an important point that there are differences. There are substantial differences between this vaccine and other vaccines, and that should absolutely be a part of the discussion surrounding them. Someone else commented in the chat with a different take on uh, social media. They said, Anyone can say anything. It gets shared and spread without any basis in fact. And like you said, the algorithm is a big part of the problem. This sort of gets back to both what I was saying and what Mr. Mann was saying. Mr. Mann was talking about negative reinforcement on these websites and how the like button and the share and retweet all of that could introduce positive reinforcement, but negative reinforcement, there's maybe lacking in some capacity, right? With the absence of a dislike button or things like that. What we do see is the sites and the platforms themselves implementing some form of negative reinforcement or punishment in the sense that your posts could get deleted, your accounts can get banned, you could be flagged, you could have posts warned for uh, misinformation or for vaccine information and things of that nature. And this has started the conversation on misinformation and the spread of misinformation on social media. We, we won't dive too deeply into it because we've been going for quite a while already. And I'm sure that this is a rabbit hole that we could go on for several more hours. But Mike, I see you've got your hand up. Go ahead whenever you want. Um, this just to be real brief, there is a, was a feed tonight that had over 600,000 people following the Twitter feed regarding comments about the truckers in Canada that Twitter took down. Since I just dovetailed the COVID discussion with social media. Mr. Mann just dropped in the chat. And I think this is an important part of the conversation to be had. And I think we should at least touch on this before closing. Um, But he asked, 
who gets the authority to say what misinformation is. Um, yeah, so this is an important question. You know, who gets to say what is or is not misinformation? We've already discussed the fact that every source could be biased, including governmental sources, including private businesses, including social media platforms, and including large, otherwise reputable sources, whether it's scientific journals or scientists themselves, government entities or agencies or individuals. If that is the case, then how do we determine what information is false? And then how do we handle it? You know, so, so I'll leave you all with the question, who gets the authority to say what inf misinformation is? If anyone has any thoughts um, outside of what we've already talked about, feel free to jump in. Um, and if not, then the last thing that I'll do before ending this discussion um, is to turn it over to you all once more, not only for that last question, but to have one last chance to say what needs saying about anything that we've talked about tonight, whether it's COVID-19, vaccines and vac vaccine mandates, masking, Kyle Rittenhouse and the verdict, or trusting news sources and figuring out how to resolve disputes about what is or is not factual. So if anyone has anything else that they'd like to say, um, feel free to either drop it in the chat, raise your hand, and I can let you um, take the floor to talk about any of these topics. But if there's something that we missed or something that you think needs a little more fleshing out, feel free to. Uh, in the meantime, we have a couple comments that I'll go through. We have one person says, the burden of sifting through the sands of truth rests upon the shoulders of the consumer of said information. I think that is very well said, very philosophically said, but very true. I mean, if you're doing your own research, as we talked about earlier, I think that it's important for you to also verify the veracity of the information that you are researching and figuring out what to trust, what not to trust, and doing at least some level of analysis on that. Uh, we have one other person that commented. They said the truth is out there. Seek it, Google it, pursue it. Yeah, I think that, again, do your own research. Solve these, these dilemmas by figuring it out on your own, pursuing it on your own, and then talking about it with other people. With that, we'll call it a night, and thank you all for joining. There's just a deliberate effort to block the kind of findings that I've published, and I'm not the only one that's being blocked. This type of authoritarian or tyrannical behavior can't just go away without people noticing. They don't like what you're saying, and therefore they're going to silence you. Peer review has really broken down. If there is no spirit of liberty, as Learned Hand once said, behind the law, the parchment is never going to survive. If they express their views, they may find themselves not getting a degree or unwelcome in their classes. The reason he took his own life was because of this cancel culture campaign. Where parents are saying, no, my kid's not putting this on their face. Through that, they've been led to, well, listen, why are you guys teaching critical theory? The science upon which these regulations are based is wrong. If we lose free speech, we are done for. Academia Uncensored, the Say What Need Saying podcast.